This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, January the 11th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, January is Braille Literacy Month. Natalie Martiniello from Braille Literacy Canada will reflect on the state of the writing system. Dr. Michael Mack discusses seasonal affective disorder and explains some ways that you can mitigate the symptoms. Plus, community reporter Melinda Kazanavishus is on a guide dog journey. She'll bring you up to speed on her progress and reflects on her experience. Before you get any of that, here is the top story of the day. The North American Leaders Summit wraps up today. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had a one-on-one with U.S. President Joe Biden yesterday before the formal events. The Prime Minister once again trumpeted the importance of trade amongst those three countries. People remember what happened just a few years ago when the certainty of this partnership was in question. Investors, businesses, workers and citizens all worried about what would happen. When free trade is at risk, that isn't good for competition in the global market. Thankfully, the belief in free and fair trade won the day. The three leaders addressed strengthening supply chains after a few years of instability. Today we discussed how we can build reliable value chains on this continent for everything from critical minerals to electric vehicles to semiconductors. This is good for workers, good for consumers, and good for communities across our countries. Trudeau reflected the importance of alignment between Canada, the United States and Mexico. We made progress on a lot of different things today. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and as North American leaders, we recognize the roles our countries play in being a source of stability and security, not just in the region, but around the world. Although this was a trilateral meeting, of course, there are many other issues within the region. So the three leaders did discuss how they could offer assistance during the humanitarian crisis in Haiti. We need to continue to be there for the people of Haiti, but we need to make sure that the solutions are driven by the people of Haiti themselves. That's why Canada's focus, as we've stepped up over the past months, uh, has been, first of all, in putting significant sanctions on the elites who are responsible for so much of the violence and political instability in Haiti. Trudeau will meet with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador one-on-one later today. Let's move on to some cyber incidents that have gone on. We'll begin with the most pressing news story. Flights are being delayed at multiple locations across the United States after a computer outage at the Federal Aviation Administration. That outage is also impacting U.S. flights at Canadian airports. Julie Walker has the latest. The FAA said in a tweet it's working on restoring its notice-to-air missions system. We are performing final validation checks and reloading the system now, said the agency. Operations across the national airspace system are affected. Notice-to-air mission systems used to be available through a hotline, but that was phased out with the Internet. The alerts span from mundane information about construction at airports to urgent flight restrictions or broken equipment. As of 6.30 in the morning, there were seven. 760 delays within, into, or out of the United States, according to FlightAware. Julie Walker, New York. And there have been a few cyber issues on the Canadian side of the border as well. A major Toronto hospital network also dealt with an outage yesterday. University Health Network spokeswoman Jillian Howard says it was not a cyber attack. Certainly our digital folks are tired, and I think the clinical teams, you know, I mean, we've been through this pandemic and people rise to the occasion, but it's tiring. And 
this was not the way to start 2023. Workers were not able to access outpatient electronic records and they needed to send some patients to other hospitals. And again, another story about digital disruption. The Liquor Control Board of Ontario says a cybersecurity incident has knocked out its website and mobile app. Karen Rebo has that story. The LCBO posted a brief statement to its social media pages last night saying a full investigation was underway. The Provincial Crown Corporation says its website and mobile app are unavailable, but in-store service is unaffected. The latest incident comes as Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children continues to recover from a December ransomware attack. A notorious ransomware group later apologized for that hit, claiming it was carried out by one of its partners. Ontario's cybersecurity expert panel concluded in a report in September that the broader public services sector needs more work to achieve cyber maturity. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. I hope you paid attention to those three stories because that will relate to our daily poll. You can find us at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Before we get into today's daily poll, let's give you the results from Tuesday where we asked you, have you introduced smart technology into your home? If so, tell us what kind and which brand in the comments. 42% of you said yes and 58% of you said no. On Facebook, we had John Wright in. Yes, I use Amazon's voice assistant with a reconfigured wake-up word computer for the Star Trek nerd in the house. And Maria writes in, yes, the Amazon voice assistant, which I love, Google Mini, and the one with screen, which is not accessible to the blind to use, JAWS for my computer. But the problem with all of this is finding help with the settings for those who are blind and know nothing about it. Also very important is to know it will work with the blind in mind. Google Mini reads for you, but the one with screen does not because it displays the text in the screen instead. I brought one to work with the doorbell, but even this is not working for a blind person and should not be recommended for blind users like they did to me. So thank you to Maria for the lengthy response there at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We encourage you to do that. Don't just vote on the poll. Don't just say yes or no. We want your thoughts to be heard and then we can broadcast it from coast to coast to coast here on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv and around the world and across the universe on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Today's daily poll, once again, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. This, of course, relates to the three stories that I just shared to you about digital disruptions that seems to be causing some havoc. Has society become too reliant on digital systems and platforms? Yes or no? Alex Smythe, I think we understand the importance of digitization in this world. It has allowed us to speed things up quite a bit. But if we reached a point where we're in such need of digital efficiency that perhaps we're crippling our actual service delivery to people. Yeah, and part of it too, I think, is the division of those digital services. I think uh, even if we go back to the summer where we had the Rogers outage and it being one of the two largest uh, providers and carriers within the country, it's like 50% of people were without uh, internet, phone service for, for a day. So you you look at that, it's, it's not just a reliance on technology, but it's who is providing the actual technological infrastructure. I think that is a, a issue that they're t so tied together. We are reliant on technology more than anything else and we're, we're not going to get away from that. We're, if anything, we're going to become more and more reliant on technology. So how can we ensure if one system goes down that it doesn't impact literally everything and every everyone? So I I think there's always that danger when it, it comes to these types of issues, especially these targeted attacks or, or outages or, or whatnot. I don't want to speculate too much because we don't know all the details. We, we heard about uh, the, um, uh, the one that it was, it was not a cybersecurity attack. We didn't hear the details from the, the other report whether or not it was, even though there were uh, previous uh, reports of other attacks happening earlier in the week. But we're always going to have to constantly evolve how we, we uh, secure our systems, how we ensure that, you know, there aren't the vulnerabilities, especially when we're dealing with sensitive information like, you know, uh, people's inf uh, personal information, if their hospital records, their credit card information. There's always going to be people out there who are going to try to get into 
and hack into those systems, try to access that information. Alex, just have to Alex sure. sometimes it's not even about nefarious players, though, right? It's about yeah. the difficulty with which it takes to put new systems in place. The Rogers yeah. outage was blamed on, oh, we did a system update that wasn't configured properly. Uh, we're looking at some of these other issues that could be with the FAA. Again, we're speculating, but I'm comfortable speculating. This could be, oh, we did a system update and it doesn't work. How often do you get even just the offer to update the operating system on your phone? You download it right away, and then your phone operates clunkily for two or three days before the new update comes in. It's one of these things where it's not just that we're uh, in danger of cybersecurity and cyber attacks. It's that the actual people implementing these systems, although well-intentioned, are dealing with so much and they're so complex that oftentimes, as we talked about on Monday, newer is not always better. And so many times newer ends up causing more disruptions. So that's what I have on my brain here is we're thinking about the reliance on digital systems. Okay, we're super reliant. You talked about the Rogers outage. One of the cascading impacts of that is you couldn't do Interac transactions for an entire day across the entire country because Interac and Rogers had partnered exclusively together. So there's no fallback systems. Even think about the introduction of the Phoenix pay system for federal employees in Ottawa, which was a total disaster. People weren't being paid yeah. properly for three years when if you just had an accountant with a spreadsheet and a pen and a paper, people could have been paid properly. So this is what I'm saying. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not throwing my laptop into Lake Ontario here. I'm simply just saying that we've reached this point where because everything needs to be digital, we're oftentimes making service delivery worse. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point, Dave. And it's, uh, it's important that uh, we also as you you highlight it's like it's not just nefarious there there's just a standard run-of-the-mill updates and and issues with the rollout of new tech systems or even the management of old ones and you you see all the time where it's like well you know the servers the systems the infrastructure was all set to accommodate people uh, this number of people well we've grown in popularity our systems haven't been upgraded we got to update it at some point it's like otherwise you're just you got a couple wires here and there and you got millions of people reliant on on those couple wires <laughs> making sure that yeah. they're still functioning yeah. right so i i think there has to be a better approach as we go forward on how we're testing systems how we're maintaining systems and and how we're really investing manpower into the maintenance oversight and just the uh, protection of those systems through all aspects, whether it's yeah. security, whether it's maintenance, whether it's updating, to make sure there isn't these types of issues that continue to happen as we go forward. You should go out and vote on the daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can send us emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, one 509 Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the National Weather Update. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's snow in the morning, and then it will be cloudy with a chance of more snow in the afternoon. Minus 3 is the high, but it, there is a wind chill that makes it feel like minus 12. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sun and clouds, which will be clearing up as the day goes on. The high there is also minus 3, but it's feeling a bit colder at minus 16. In Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly sunny. The high is minus 8 and it's feeling like minus 20, but there is a special weather statement in effect for snow and freezing rain expected overnight until Friday. So it's going to be wet and ugly conditions for the rest of the week over in Montreal. To Ottawa, Ontario, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds. The high is minus 7, but with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 20. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or freezing rain this morning. Then it will be shifting to snow in the afternoon. The high is 2 degrees, but feeling like minus 10. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, snow off and on today with possible freezing rain in the morning. The high is also 2 degrees, but feeling like minus 3. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, there's light snow this morning, then mainly cloudy. The high is minus 6 and it's feeling closer to minus 17. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's cloudy with a chance of snow this morning. There was heavy fog in the area which is resulting in a fog advisory. 
The high, minus 9, but that wind chill, minus 18. The Calgary, Alberta. It's mainly sunny today, minus 2 is the high, and minus 15 with that wind chill. In Edmonton, Alberta, it is mainly cloudy, minus 5 is the high, and minus 12 with the wind chill, but there was actually a fog advisory and special air quality advisory both in effect in the area. So the air is stagnant, it's causing uh, air quality concerns, and then there's also that dense heavy fog to deal with. Up to Yellowknife Northwest Territories, there's light snow throughout the day, minus 12 is the high, and feeling closer to minus 21. Over to Vancouver, BC, there's increasing cloud cover in the morning with a chance of rain, and the high is nine degrees. Finally in Victoria, BC, cloud rolling in this morning. There is a chance of rain in the afternoon, and the wind warning is in effect overnight due to high winds expected. And the high for Victoria is also nine degrees. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Natalie Martiniello will chat about the importance of Braille Literacy Month. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. January is Braille Literacy Month. To talk more about the state of Braille in 2023 is Natalie Martiniello. Natalie is the past president of Braille Literacy Canada. Natalie joins us from my old hometown of Montreal, Quebec. Hey, good morning, Natalie. How are you? Hi, Dave. Thank you for inviting me. It's so great to chat with you once again. It's been a couple of years since we last caught up. Natalie, I know this question is big and broad, but I think it's a great place to start for people who may not be super familiar with Braille. How would you describe the state of Braille in 2023? The state of Braille in 2023 and also looking ahead into the future is strong. It's just as irreplaceable and immovable as the place of print in the lives of people who are sighted. And it really is a symbol of equitable and accessible information and literacy. And so, you know, as technology continues to evolve, we actually see increased access to Braille for, for all those who use it. So it's very exciting. Natalie, dig a little deeper into that technological evolution, because for so long, Braillers were something that were either very expensive or very clunky to use. And now we've seen all these digital Braille devices. How is that impacting getting Braille onto the fingers of people all around the world? Absolutely. Well, there's a very common misconception, which will be familiar to um, those viewers, viewers who are Braille users as well, that technology is replacing Braille. Um, but of course, the opposite is actually true, because as technology continues to evolve, we actually have more um, immediate access to Braille through devices like Braille displays and Braille note takers that connect to our computers, to our smartphones, to our tablets, um, we can instantly access the same information that is visually displayed onto the screen. And that has really changed the playing field because what that means is that when um, books and other published materials are developed into an accessible format, we have access to that reading content on the day that it's released with these Braille devices, rather than uh, traditionally in the past when we've had to really wait for that to be produced um, through specialized services. So it's really changed access to information. Um, and, and as these devices become more and more affordable, that will continue to be true. Also, at the same time, Braille transcription software has continued to become more and more sophisticated. So it's just streamlining access to information in Braille. There's a long legacy of the importance of Braille within the community. And we know for so many people, as you've pointed out, it's strong. The state is strong. But 
as we continue to see demographic changes, what can we do to make sure that the future generations of people who may be born with some kind of vision loss or younger people who are acquiring a vision disability, what can, we, what can be done to make sure the literacy component of Braille remains strong, that we can give those opportunities for people to learn the codes? Absolutely. Yeah, it's such, it's such a big and important question. And I think the first aspect here is to be aware of those misconceptions around Braille. And so we need to start by understanding that Braille is equivalent to print. So it really is fundamental access to literacy. And although technology is important and valuable and wonderful, it doesn't replace the importance of having access to spelling and grammar and punctuation. We know there's a lot of research out there that shows us, that tells us that people who use Braille are more likely to have higher levels of education, employment, and income. And that's not surprising because the same is true for sighted people, that people who are literate have more access to these opportunities. So being aware of these misconceptions is the first aspect because we would never, um, consider whether a sighted child should learn print, but at times that discussion does happen um, in the world of Braille, should a blind child learn Braille? Mm. So starting there, now for people, you're very correct in saying that the demographic is changing because traditionally we've had so many Braille users who were born with a visual impairment. And today we're seeing more and more of this increased prevalence of adults who experience sight loss mm -hmm. and even older adults due to, you know, different age-related conditions like macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. And so I think the key here is to understand that even with access to all the other tools around you, Braille still really plays an important role. Um, you can think about um, what role print played in your life before vision loss. And so that same, um, Braille can play that exact same role, right? To identify items in your in your home, um, two cans of soup that feel exactly the same, to make notes for yourself, phone numbers, to give presentations where it might be more difficult to access that content through audio. So recognizing um, how Braille can enhance your independence after sight loss, that it isn't a symbol of disability, it's a symbol of independence mm. and empowerment. And connected to that, ensuring that we advocate for equitable access to opportunities to learn Braille for adults across the country in every province. And that has to include remote areas as well, mm. rural areas. One of the really interesting threads to tug at is that much like any linguistic code, Braille continues to evolve. And last fall, Braille Literacy Canada endorsed the Mi'kmaq Braille code. We actually uh, brought on one of the creators of that code onto the show to talk about that. What's the significance of the endorsement of that code and the evolution of Braille linguistically as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Braille, Braille continues to evolve alongside print. Um, and this is a really exciting development for us in Canada, but I think just for Braille users globally, um, is that Braille is important and it's available in many languages, but we want to ensure that it's also available in underrepresented languages as well, including Indigenous communities. So the Mi'kmaq Braille Code was developed by a Braille transcriber from the Atlantic provinces named Christine Muse, and she worked very closely with members of the Mi'kmaq speaking community in Canada, um, including Dr. Bernie Francis, who is actually a native speaker speaker of Mi'kmaq um, and a linguist, as well as other blind linguists from the U.S. and other areas as well. Mm. And it was endorsed and, and recognized and celebrated by Chief Terry Paul as well. And we're really excited about that because in addition to providing access to the Mi'kmaq language um, and ensuring that blind uh, users of Braille from these communities can preserve and learn and use their language, it's also a really um, 
valuable representation of working um, collaboratively because you can't just create a new Braille code, right, in, in 30 minutes or less, right? You need to understand how the Braille code works, which is why it's great to have uh, transcribers and other uh, experts involved. But you also need to understand the language itself, the Mi'kmaq language. And that effort needs to be guided and led by members of the indigenous community. And so that's that's really important to us. So it's actually the first um, indigenous code to be officially uh, endorsed in Canada. And in the US we have um, some others as well, like the Navajo Braille Code mm. as well. I was beyond thrilled to speak to Christine about that process. I knew nothing about the actual process of creating a code. So it was a great opportunity to have a learning experience talking to Christine. It was super, super cool. Natalie, we know that January being Braille Literacy Month means that Braille Literacy Canada is very, very busy. That said, you guys are busy the whole year round. Where should people go to learn more about events you guys are hosting or other initiatives that are going on throughout the year? Absolutely. So you can visit BrailleLiteracyCanada.ca for information about all our various initiatives, um, as well as events related to World Braille Day. You can also find us on Twitter at BRLLitCan, all one word, um, to have updates on a regular basis. But we are collaborating with several other organizations throughout the month of January to celebrate World Braille Day and Braille Literacy Month, which is officially recognized as um, an official day of commemoration by the United Nations. And um, we have a variety of different virtual events throughout January. Actually, the first one is today, um, all about, about strategies for learning Braille in adulthood. We have another one next week um, in French about the impact of Braille in the lives of those who use it. On the 21st, we have a, a really exciting celebration, we're calling it a variety <laughs> show. <laughs> so with, with music and poems and stories all to celebrate Louis Braille and World Braille Day. And then on the 25th, we'll be having a conversation about the role of Braille at the post-secondary level. And there are also a variety of different activities that you can download um, and games to play with students who use Braille. So uh, definitely check us out on BrailleLiteracyCanada.ca to learn more. And this event is free and open to anyone who would like to join us. Natalie, it's been too long since we last chatted. Let's make sure we uh, get together uh, more often than every couple of years. Thank you for making Making time for us today and Thank you enjoy, so much. and enjoy the celebrations. That's excellent. I love that. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Natalie Martiniello is the past president of Braille Literacy Canada. Coming up next, Anupala will reflect on the importance of taking care of our elders. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You've heard the expression, respect your elders. It makes sense. But what does it mean? What does it mean to take care of older generations? And how can you do it? Anu Paula has thoughts on this. Anu is the founder of A New Vision Coaching and Consulting. Hey, good morning, Anu. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. Anu, what got you thinking about the topic of caring for elders? Well, two things. We just came out of the season of giving. And so during that time, um, with all the hustle and bustle of giving material things, uh, it got me thinking about the importance of giving of self. So that means spending quality time with the people we care about or our neighbors or just doing random acts of kindness, as we've talked about on this segment. The other thing was, is I recently moderated a panel for an organization that I work with in the US, which was on the topic of aging with grace. And so it was all about the importance of um, caring for our elders. 
When we're talking about caring for elders, one of the big threads to pull at is isolation. Isolation is something that's all too real for people with disabilities. To your mind, how does isolation relate to the experience of people who are aging? Isolation and loneliness can be experienced in a number of ways. Um, as you may be aware, we live in a, as you may be aware here in Canada and other countries as well, we live in this melting pot and, and often we live in extended families. And so when adult children are working and they're busy with their own children, often the elders could be potentially left out. So they're left home alone all day. Um, there could be issues of language barriers, uh, disability, and so in all these cases, their worlds can become really small. Um, and so that is something for us to really take a moment and think about, like the people in our lives, maybe our neighbors, uh, how, how is um, that impacting their lives? It's something that I've contemplated a lot anew. Uh, when I was growing up, the vast majority of my family, the, the vast, vast majority of my family lived within about 10 blocks of each other, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about multi-generations all being within walking distance from one another. And as we've all gotten older and we've moved all over the place, I'm one of the few members of my family who lives in Toronto. Some people live in Vancouver, some people live in Ottawa, some people live on the Sunshine Coast. It, it, it really strikes me the way in which we were able to form community amongst family and, and mm -hmm. maybe not like, maybe care for older generations is the wrong way to put it, but be very present for the older generations yeah. in our lives and be very symbiotic and mutual in the way that we live together and that changes whether it be for geographical circumstances for someone who may have uh, gone through an immigration or in my case just moving for work moving as life takes you different places so like I, I think like you're right on in identifying that that really no matter what the circumstance somebody may be in no matter what their socioeconomic status there's all kinds of things that can impact that isolation Oh my gosh, so much so. I mean, uh, working with this organization in the U.S. that where we provide services to seniors, we see all kinds of things come up. And and my husband as well, working in elder care, I hear all kinds of stories, some really wonderful ones and some not so wonderful ones. We know that elder abuse uh, exists in, our, in here as well. And so these are things that I think that we really need to start thinking about. Um, I mean, I know we know for a fact that people with disabilities experience loneliness uh, as well, and that's mm -hmm. our world. But mm -hmm. at, at times we experience that for different reasons, but also taking time to think about our aging population is really, really, I think, something for us all to think about. Mm -hmm. Anu, before you give some insight on ways that can be given back to serve individuals, life can be really busy. How do you find the time or how can we find the time to give back? I think one thing is to really focus on the act of giving rather than the task. So really understanding how a small action can positively impact an individual. And so that's what really motivates me to give. It's not necessarily the act itself, but just knowing that a small thing can make such a huge difference in a person's life. Mm -hmm. Okay, let, let's talk about the things. Let's talk about the actions. Yeah. Let's split this into two different categories, the structured and the gestures. So what is a structured way or what are the structured ways somebody could give back to serve elders in the community? So some of the things you could do is maybe volunteer at a senior center of some sort or a day program. Um, taxes are coming up, so you know tax clinics. These are things where, or you know, you're really making a difference in a person's life. Um, look for organizations that offer intergenerational programs. So I think it's really important to expose children to elders. Like I never grew up with my grandparents. I never really knew my grandparents. And so capturing the wisdom of our elders. So some of those sort of ways 
could be really effective. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, some of those volunteer uh, tax organizations or, or, or tax uh, community initiatives. That's something my mom used to do. My mom was an accountant mm -hmm. by trade uh, for a long time, and that's what she used to do. She used to go give her time during tax season to help individuals from uh, lower income groups or seniors deal with their taxes. And she loved it because she loved doing the paperwork and she loved giving back to the community. So she mixed passion with, with grace and gratitude and community, which was lovely. Okay, Anu, what about the smaller gestures? Because these are the ones that I think are actually very attainable for people to contemplate and consider in their day-to-day -day lives. So what are the small gestures or small actions someone could take as a way of giving back? Yeah, these are really good ones. So um, something as simple of helping somebody bag their groceries or take their groceries to the car, offer your seat on public transit. I know this sounds like a common sense things, but trust me, I have seen it. Well, even though I don't have vision, I've experienced it where there's an elder who will get on the bus or the SkyTrain and there are people sitting there and they don't offer their seat and then eventually somebody will. But you know, these are just simple things that can really make a difference in a person's life. Um, shoveling the snow, we're in winter season right now, so shoveling the driveway for a neighbor, you know. Um, another really, really important one, I think, is around technology. So whether it's printing off information for someone who may not have a printer. We, we do this for my parents, for example. <laughs> uh, my parents don't have a printer right now. And so um, often, you know, if there's something important that they need to print off, like an itinerary for travel or anything like that, we'll just do it for them. And it really just removes that stress level for them. Like, oh, where am I going to get it done? How am I going to get it done? So, you know, all these little things that just really make a difference. And the final one I'll say is another one is um, access information online for somebody whether it's a neighbor or family member because now we're living in this digital world where so many things are accessed online or you know those phone trees you know yeah press one yeah. for this press two for them and then after so many buttons it gets very confusing I've seen it myself with elders they get very confused at times and so helping somebody through the navigate that yeah, it's, it, when you think about the small gestures, oftentimes that does require a little more intimacy in your life. But but that can but that can, that's okay, right? It's okay to help people who are a little closer to you with with smaller gestures. I remember when my aunt Doreen took a fall in two thousand and eight. I ended up grabbing her groceries for her for the rest of the week, yeah. just just cause, right? It's I, I lived a block a block or two away. I was definitely unemployed and quite lazy at the time, but I was going to get groceries anyway, right? It took two mm -hmm. seconds to call Aunt Doreen and say, Aunt. I'm passing by the grocery store. I'm passing by your house on the way home. What do you need today? Let me pick it up right. for you and like you just relax. So like there, it doesn't always need to be the grandest, grandiose gesture in the yeah. world. Sometimes it's just offering that little bit of consideration. And so many times it can actually be something that's already in your day-to-day -day schedule. You don't need to reinvent your work-life balance to do a little bit of kindness. Absolutely not. And you know what, Dave, there's one really important one, sorry that I missed, I really wanted to highlight and that is just simply checking in. Mm, mm -hmm. Checking in with people, because so, we sometimes don't know how a person might be doing, or it, just checking in on people, you know? It's really, really important. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, I know uh, you guys did get walloped with some snow and some winter there in Vancouver, but something here on the eastern side of the country, definitely on those snowy days when the snow plows have absolutely uh, pushed up huge snow banks on crosswalks, definitely if you can and you're capable, lend a hand and help somebody across those snow banks, or maybe even if you're nearby with a shovel, maybe uh, go out of your way to try and carve a little bit of a pathway so people can get through. So yeah, lots of things you can do to uh, pay it forward through a universality. Hey, Anu. Happy to uh, chat with you. Thank you for making time for us. Always bright and early out there on the West Coast in Surrey, BC. All the best to you, and we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Thank you so much, Dave. Have a great day. That is Anu Paula, the founder of Anu Vision Coaching and Consulting. Coming up after the break, community reporter Milena Kazanavishus has gone through a guide dog journey, and she'll bring you up to speed on her progress and reflects on the experience. But first, Lenovo is showing off a laptop with two screens. Double the screens, double the fun. Mike Dubuski will tell you more in Tech Trends.
There's actually a pair of connected 13-inch uh, OLED screens on the inside. PC Mag senior editor Mark Hockman says the 9i can operate like a normal laptop. It even comes with a physical keyboard. It clips right over the top of the second screen. But Lenovo has also included a special stand. And you can put the laptop or I guess the dual screens on it like you would a, a book. So you have sort of a left-hand screen and a right-hand screen. It can also be oriented with the keyboard flat and the two screens stacked on top of each other. Lenovo says it's aimed at people who got used to having a dual screen set up at home. When you get to using a secondary screen, like the uh, the Book 9i offers, it feels a little bit more like your home setup and a little bit more comfortable as well. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The journey of getting a new guide dog can be bittersweet. On one hand, you're hitting refresh on your independence. On the other paw, you're saying goodbye to a longtime companion. Halifax community reporter Milena Kazanavishis has gone through this journey and wants to share her experience with you. Hey, good morning, Milena. Nice to chat with you once again. Good morning, Dave, and Happy New Year. It's been a while. Yeah, Happy New Year. We were talking about this with <laughs> Megan Gilmore yesterday. We're saying that as of January 15th, any more Happy New Year's will be uh, rebuffed. But for now, I will wish you back a Happy New Year because that's okay, when the good, timeline I'm glad. runs then how, come, yeah. how, how, how about welcome to 2023? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you squeezed it in. You squeezed it in, yeah. Milena. Milena, right before we last spoke, you were yeah. off to New Jersey to go through this guide dog training process. How did it go? Oh, well, um, uh, the last time we spoke was around uh, November, uh, I believe, and I wasn't feeling that well. It ended up being I had COVID. Uh, so November 14, I had COVID. November 28, two weeks later, I'm on a plane to New Jersey um, thinking, what have I done? <laughs> um, and in New Jersey, from November 29th right till December 15, um, it was full speed ahead uh, in at the seeing eye. Um, this was probably one of the hardest uh, guide dog trainings I've done. We are up at 5.30 in the morning and you go full tilt with uh, obedience, lectures, roots, training, um, repeat, repeat, 5.30 in the morning until 8 o'clock at night. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, trying to recover from, from COVID at the same time, it, it was very exhaustive um, to come home right before Christmas, I literally collapsed mm. um, to, to the point where it was two days of me not being able to move. However, we don't have that choice when you come home with your new partner. No, you do not. No, um, because they're ready and wanting to go and they're going to pull all sorts of stunts. So for anybody who's coming home with a new guide dog and if your guide dog is misbehaving or pulling you in every direction and testing every inch of every nerve, Welcome to the process. It takes yeah. a whole year to get to know each other and mine. So her name is Hope. <laughs> I've, I've sent two pictures along, one of her beautiful black face. She's a little black lab. She looks big on uh, in the picture. She's 53 pounds, 21 inches at the withers. And uh, just, it's like sticking your hand in a can of worms. Wiggly, wiggly, wiggly. <laughs> never had a dog like this ever in my life. I've never had a lab in my life. Um, so it's a whole new experience for me. Um, we are having some difficulty because of our infrastructure in Halifax. That's a whole other discussion for another month. Um, and uh, But other than that, I, I'm, I'm moving faster than the speeding bullet yeah. with uh, hope. Milena, leaving those first two days of collapse aside, I think that's something that anybody yeah. can empathize with, with, any kind of traveling, let alone the schedule that you were running. Mm -hmm. And you said you want to maybe save the conversation about Halifax infrastructure vis-a-vis -vis guide dog <laughs> training for another time. Yes. But how are yeah. you, now that we've had a couple weeks, how are you doing with the adjustments? We're, uh, I mean, she's, I would say she's, Probably, I don't like to compare my, my any of my dogs. She's my fourth, um, but I will give her, she's probably uh, one of the smartest dogs I've had. Um, she's very fast. We're, we're just can't align because our curb cuts are these giant, I'll call them pie cuts. 
Um, and again, that's for a whole other because I've got I've got I've got a full schedule of advocacy with the city <laughs> because they're not listening. So yeah. they she, they thought they got rid of you when you went to New Jersey for two weeks. Yeah, but guess no, what? No, Melinda's no. back. Yeah, no, no. So we're veering into traffic a little bit. Um, and and again, that, that falls upon me as well to make sure my shoulders are aligned. C contrary to people's belief, your dog follows where your body is positioned. So your feet have to be straight, you as a human being, your shoulders have to be in line for where you want to cross, and your head as well. And then the dog follows. Um, you know, they, they are taught to avoid traffic, but your dog is not going to cross you straight if you're not aligned straight for that crossing, and it's just not happening. Anyway, it, it, we're, there will be an instructor coming out from the States to help us and redirect us. and. Uh, it couldn't come soon enough. Yeah, but, yeah. So, but, but but I'm 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 uh, despite all the tiredness and and angst, um, I'm full of joy. It's, yeah, it, <laughs> it it's not uncommon for the first few months as someone's going through a guide dog no. transition to go through that difficulty because you and Lewis probably communicated in shorthand. Your old your old guide dog and you knew each other oh. like the back of each other's hand, right? So yes. this is not yeah. uncommon for anybody as they're dealing with a a younger dog, just a younger dog in general, and b yep. a new dog. Like this this is to be um, yeah. understood. It's it's part of the process. Yeah. And and I I kid you not that please everybody hear this out it takes an entire year to understand one another once you're home an entire year yeah yeah and so we we've got we've got a bit of a long road ahead but it's okay yeah. so so that's that's how you're doing that's how Hope's doing what about Lewis how yeah. is he enjoying retirement oh he's living the life of Riley he's with my parents and their dog Bella and Lewis has taught Bella. How to whine and beg at the table. Uh, <laughs> apparently, he's directing my parents on when to open the refrigerator door and when to close it. And my father calls me every day and tells me profanities that <laughs> my dog has uh, stolen his sandwich or ate his soup. And I said, "It's your dog now." So, <laughs> so Lewis, Lewis is, is having a great time. <laughs> Lewis is loving a life off harness. That's good for Lewis. Oh, yes. It's it's time well learned, and it just means uh, making a few more sandwiches around the Kazanavish's household. Uh, Milena, let's let's pivot over to the CNIB. You wanted to give an update on their Living with Sight Loss program. What is that program putting on offer? Okay, so I'm I'm um, the CNIB is offering an, a lot of in person. Um, uh, classes, sessions, including knitting club and book club, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you can, you know, check and find all that online. Call, um, call into the local CNIB. But I really wanted to bring uh, the living with sight loss forward, particularly it's January. And for our viewers who are, let's say, fully sighted or have recently lost their sight, or maybe you're someone who has RP and, and your sight has diminished significantly. I have a friend who's having a hard time dealing with it <clears throat> right now as well. So the Living with Sight Loss, um, it's an eight-week program. Um, registration is required. It's free. There is, starting in February the 7th on Tuesdays, uh, every Tuesday on February the 7th, starting February 7th, from 11 to 12, that will be a telephone session. Every Wednesday, starting February the 8th, um, in person at the CNAB office on Almond Street from 1 to 3 p.m. And you're going to be in a, in a very safe environment um, in conversation with someone who's been through sight loss and in conversation with people who are going through sight loss. So the anger, uh, the, 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 the disappointment, the sadness, the depression, all of it, I really, really urge people to consider partaking in these sessions um, because it's January. It's hard. Yeah. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. Plus, you're going through sight loss adjustment. And this program, maybe you'll have to take it to two, three, four times. But if you can, venture yourself to the telephone or out in person. Uh, I think it will help a lot to to help to, I don't know. I, I can't come up with the word. Um, but, you know, maybe cope. to help to cope. To cope. cope. Yeah. 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 So, um, and in order to do that, you can call Kaylin Lloyd. Um, at 902-403-6982, 902-403-6982. You can also email Kaylin, um, and it's a Gaelic spelling, so it's <laughs> kaylinloyd at cnib.ca. Good luck with this one, everybody. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll say it, C-A-E. 
E-L-I-N dot L-L-O-Y-D at CNIB.ca. You'll have that up on the blog and uh, starting February 2nd and, and February the 8th. Um, please, please, please don't suffer by yourself. Yeah, definitely take advantage of these services in yeah. your community. We were just just talking about peer support yesterday with Dorothy McNaughton. Yeah. We were talking about taking care of our elders a few minutes ago with a new Paula. This is the time yeah. of the year. We're going to be talking about seasonal affective disorder uh, in the second hour of the show. This is the time of yeah. the year when if there are yeah. peer resources available to you, peer support resources available to you, please, yeah. please, please take advantage. And uh, yes, Melanie, you mentioned all that information you shared. will go up on the blog after the show, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. No Gaelic spelling oh, in ami.ca. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to tell a little secret here that, that a, a friend of mine who, who uh, puts these programs together. So also coming in February at CNIB, there will be a Dungeons and Dragons group for all you D&D fanatics. <laughs> okay. Um, and also a music therapy class. Don't know all the details yet, but keep your ears and eyes okay. peeled uh, for that coming Milena your way. Melena with the inside <laughs> scoop. Melena, we've only got about two minutes left here, but let's yeah. talk about some winter fun for Haligonians to enjoy yeah. at the Emera Oval. I feel like you've talked about this before, yeah. but what are they putting on for some winter programming? Okay, so I, I do every every winter, uh, every summer. It's a, This is a, a cement oval uh, the size of three NHL hockey uh, skating rinks. Um, in the in the summer, you can you know uh, rollerblade, skate, bicycle tandem, on um, all that stuff. In the winter, they fill it with water and freeze it up. So free, 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 free. Uh, helmet rental, skate rental. Um, they have public accessible washrooms, first aid. Um, you do need some ID. You do have to wear a helmet. Um, if you don't have skates, they'll, they'll provide the skates for you. Uh, the Amira Oval plenty 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 of buses you can get there um they have sledge sledges um they have um kick sleds i'm not really sure what those are but i'm, I'm presuming you'd hold on and, and help the support and uh, um another assistive uh devices to help you get on that ice and uh, get out get some fresh air get rid of your depression and it's all free <laughs> yeah it seems... and you can you you can Sorry, you can, you can contact, um, you can get more information at the hotline, which is 902-490-2347. That'll be up on the blog. Milena, it seems like if there's one thing Halifax does really nicely is you guys do offer a lot of free public programming yeah. to get people out into the downtown core or wherever the Emera Oval may be in the HRM. I don't know. I still don't quite understand all your geography. There's oceans and inlets <laughs> everywhere. But it does seem like the city does work really hard to get offer a lot of complimentary programming to bring the community together the the oval is uh, in the in the halifax common so if you were on the waterfront you'd be walking all the way uphill close to citadel hill uh for that, you that's right we should definitely <laughs> refer to your town as halifax i've i've observed that while yeah. i've been there too hey milana thank you for this thank you yeah. for these updates thank you for sharing a little bit of the vulnerability of your guide dog journey and look forward to a chatting with you again in a couple weeks excellent that well, is that is Melinda Kazanavishis, community reporter in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I do want to remind you that you can find more information on these stories on the blog, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. You should just make that the landing page on your internet browser. Go into the settings, put that onto the browser and say, boom, Dave's blog every day, a good jumping off point. And then you can spend a little more time, you know, messing around ami.ca as well. Lots of our content's available there for you on demand. All our TV shows, the great video shows with description and closed captioning. That's what you should do. AMI.ca slash now, landing page in your browser, and then you're with us through and through. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update, and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.